0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome to Books, Books, Books Australian writer and social researcher Dr Rebecca Huntley to talk about her sixth book, the brilliantly titled How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference," published by Alan and Unwin. Rebecca is one of Australia's leading social researchers with degrees in law and film studies and a PhD in gender studies. She's the principal at Vox Populi Research. She's a member of Al Gore's Climate Reality Corps, and carries out social research for -for not-for-profits such as the Wilderness Society and others. She's the author of numerous books and articles, She writes and presents for the ABC, and she's an adjunct senior lecturer at the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Rebecca, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. Rebecca, you start your book by describing an an aha moment in December 2018, when you yourself moved from a general concern about climate change to a passionate concern and a decision to commit your working life to helping to save the environment. Tell us about that moment. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, I it was a moment probably fueled by um, quiet contemplation and the first hit of coffee in the morning because I, I I tend to wake up very early unlike the rest of my family, and uh, I was kind of sitting on the couch with the dog, having a coffee, and looking at um, ABC News Twenty Four and watching what had previously been I think the second students' climate strike in Australia and a lot of footage from Sydney but also around the country and looking at those terrific kids, just a little bit older than my eldest daughter, who's 12, and kind of looking at their signs, which were very kind of quite, and you know, in that typical way, quite funny, um, but also some of them quite heartfelt about, you know, you need to save our future and... And there was one particular sign that struck me as, um, as uh, particularly funny and poignant and this young girl had a sign which said, why should we stay in school when you won't listen to the educated? Which was a bit of a, a jab at our Prime Minister who had previously said these young people should stay in school rather than strike for the climate. And I thought, oh well, you know, good on these young people kind of telling older generations and the powers that be about what to do. And then of course I realised I am that older generation. <laughs> so it's a bit of a bit of a personal recognition that I'm probably older than I am. Um and it's true, a lot of people who I went through university with and who are at my age group are now in significant positions of power and in corporations and in um in parliaments. And I don't have a lot of power but I have a platform that I that I could use to and, and I have a skill set. So there was really this moment and I talk about it as a as almost a physical sensation and and not because not that I thought I understood the climate science better because I'd always taken the climate science at face value because I don't think that 99% of all scientists in the world are lying to me about <laughs> climate change. I accept the science. I accept the urgency intellectually but emotionally I didn't until that moment, until I saw young Australians not much older than my children make a very heartfelt, genuine plea, we can't do much on our own but we can't vote, we don't run big corporations, we're not in parliament but you are, do something. And really I went from, you know, that was a transformation that was an immediate one. That set off probably a a chain reaction in my personal and professional life, which meant that now I almost work exclusively as a social researcher and strategist on climate um, issues, particularly how we understand how people feel about climate and how we can talk to them about it. It led to writing the book and it led to Mm -hmm. pretty much everything else I do, as well as a renewed effort in recycling and, you know, Googling electric cars and... (laughs) and all those other kinds of things, Um, changing my superannuation fund, changing a range of other things, including my plans for the future, my personal plans for the future as well.
0: And Rebecca, your book is quite unique, I think, in the way that it's written in the content, as well as the style. You describe it as a self-help guide for the climate age. And that's exactly what it is. It's a practical guide. On how to manage your own feelings and how to talk to people with a whole range of different views about climate change. Why did you decide to write it in that way and what was the aim of the book?
1: So, a lot of my previous writing had been very much um, about other people and about um, listening to their conversations about their lives, and it was very much a kind of a very much a, a a consequence of my work as a social market researcher, but also a lawyer and somebody who studied politics. So it was much more about structures and, and conversations and narratives, you know, national narratives around big questions. And it was very rare that I ever put myself in the centre of it. And it was also very rare because I didn't study psychology at university. I don't have a PhD in psychology, I have a PhD in, in politics, I have a law degree. Um, so my training very much didn't, it's not so much it made me overlook psychology, but it was just not the frame in which I looked um, at a lot of issues. And because this interesting climate was triggered by a very personal response rather than an intellect, you know, previous books have been like, oh, isn't that intellectually interesting rather than isn't that um, emotionally or philosophically interesting to me? So that was... That dictated everything. It dictated the structure. It dictated the, the different kinds of resources I um, went and sought, and it dictated the style, which is I, t- I put myself in it a little much more than I would have previously. Often, as social researchers, we are necessarily told not to think about how we think about what people are saying, about our personal response, and that's what makes us good social researchers. We we strive for objectivity as much as possible. In the work that we do, objectivity but empathy, but we don't put ourselves at the centre of the story. And then, of course, the other thing about it—the reason why I wanted to look at the psychology of it—is I realised that, you know, one of the one of the challenges that we all face is that we, and one of the one of the things with one of the issues we have to really crack the barrier we have to crack is that actually, when you look at the surveys. The vast majority of Australians and people in other countries believe climate change is happening, it's real, want governments to do something about it, but Mm -hmm. don't act in their day-to-day life, including often when they vote, as if it is those things. So there is a disconnect.
0: I thought there was something interesting. You talk about the statistics at one point and you say that the statistics probably in Australia of, let's call them climate deniers for want Mm -hmm. of better expression, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that that percentage is really only somewhere between 10% and 22%, but they're a vocal minority and and they are a minority that are in positions of power. What was your aim with this book? If you could tell me in a couple of sentences, what did you want to achieve with it?
1: I wanted people to understand their emotional response to climate change better and other people's emotional response to climate change better, rather than saying people who don't think what I think on climate change are stupid or not getting the right information or whatever Um, and we often do that we think that more information or more intelligence (laughs) will help people grasp climate change wherever you see it right I wanted them to understand themselves and the people around them better in order to ongoing navigate their own feelings and emotions around climate and be more effective communicators, even if their job isn't to be a communicator, Mm. even if their job is just to have a conversation with their peers, their friends, their family members, that doesn't, um, you know, stop, you know, before it starts or disintegrate into finger-pointing. That's really what I wanted to do. And, and I thought that if people did understand their own emotional reactions and other people's emotional reactions and understand why they existed and understand that there is actually a reason why that people respond with fear, denial, anger, all of those other things to climate, that we might navigate a new way through, new conversations, new productive interactions with other people. Because, then- breaking, sorry, because breaking the climate science is is one of our biggest challenges.
0: So your book is full of stories of different people that you've spoken to all over the world. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the people you spoke with? Because it wasn't just scientists and academics, was it? It was much broader than that.
1: Yes, in fact, I don't think I I spoke to many natural scientists at all. Um, And that's not to say that they're not worth talking to, but we've heard a lot from them. I was interested in different kinds of people from, different, from around the world, from different disciplines and about how they navigate their own climate activism and how they manage all of these emotions. Because even though I tend to interview one person per chapter on, on how they might manage anger or what they think of hope, in the extensive in- interviews I did with all of them, they've all experienced all of them sometimes sometimes. <laughs> At the same moment, so I talked to a terrific Australian but UK-based playwright on the whole notion of um, anger and how he and whether he thinks anger is productive or not. Um,
0: you know, a farmer
1: from Africa, uh, a, a marine a, a marine biologist and activist, or kind of sea conservation activist from the Philippines. Um, a terrific woman who had been a um, a lawyer in, in New York City who experienced a kind of extreme weather event and suddenly became a, you know, a, a climate activist and started the first climate change museum in the world. The different kinds of people. And I thought that being relatively new to the environment movement, even though these emotions felt really raw and new to me, I knew there would be tons of people who would give me some wisdom about how they've navigated these emotions and, and what they thought was effective. You know, there's the there's the psychological studies, there's the social research, and then there's people's lived experience who've been at the coalface of the climate movement around the world for decades. And so I wanted to talk to them.
0: So... One of the central themes of your of your argument is that it's time for emotion, not reason. There's been enough reason, there's been enough science, the facts are in, there's 99% consensus amongst experts as to the facts. You say it's now time to stop being reasonable and to start being emotional when we talk about climate change. What do you mean by that? Why won't the facts alone uh, persuade the sceptics and the deniers? <laughs>
1: Oh, this, is, this is my provocation, because sometimes it makes me sound like we need to lie to people or we're in a post-truth world. So that's certainly not what I'm arguing. I, I borrow very extensively from the interest in literature done about the effectiveness of science communication generally, which is previously this idea is that you would just kind of put the facts in front of people, whether that be citizens, voters or policymakers. And they go, oh, okay, well, it's so obvious what we have to do. And there's, you know, if that was the case, we would have nailed this some time ago. Um, Now, while there's some really great science communicators in the world, there's also, you know, it's also really difficult. You have to wrap the scientific facts, you have to wrap around them, a story that's relatable to people and that, And you've also got to give people some sense of a reason to act. And the facts alone won't do that. The facts have got us pretty far. At the moment in Australia, the most recent research that we've done shows that deniers are about less than 10%. There's probably another 12% who are, you know, deniers light. Everybody else is on board. So the facts and, and some good advocacy and probably some extreme weather events. Have got us really close to about between 70 to 75%. But in that group, different people feel a sense of the urgency differently and also feel a confusion about well, what's the way forward? Understandably, given our politicians are still (laughs) still at loggerheads on this question. Right now, as we speak, the New South Wales coalition look like they're about to fall apart about. Just uh, on the question of farmers' rights, land clearing and protecting koalas after a mm. fire. So they still mm. see the people whose job it is to lead completely incapable of coming to some kind of reasonable decision about a way forward.
0: And so I wanted I, to ask you about that because that's another point you make in your book. Here in Australia and in the US, the climate debate is very highly politicised and broadly speaking, you've got climate denial and scepticism as associated with the conservative side of politics and you've got concern about climate change associated with the latte sipping lefties. Yes. Is it that political everywhere in the world? No, it
1: isn't. It, 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 it's something about the English speaking world. Why? <laughs> well, I think some people, and I think unfairly, I don't think it's, I think it's too overdone, think it's about the Murdoch media. Other people think it's about um, just the very nature of, of the way that the Conservative parties in Australia and the US operate. But it's not anywhere near like that in the UK, interestingly.
0: No. So, I mean... Well, I, I, I remember reading that Margaret Thatcher was one of the first to take pro-environmental steps, and that's something that the, the Tories speak about with, with some pride, understandably.
1: Absolutely, and even now during COVID, we don't have that sense in the UK government that they have to choose between, you know, a transition to renewables and economic recovery because they've already put the, the kind of the, that in train for some time, and even though they're not part of the European Union, that's happening throughout Europe as well. So nobody thinks it's an either-or choice there, but it's still positioned as that here in the United States. And Look, in Italy,
0: you, have, you give the example, you say the kids study climate climate change at they, school
1: they do in fact they have a they, it's almost like a compulsory course, which is extraordinary and again that's a very very in many ways quite conservative country at the moment where there's still populist government, so it's not about necessarily about populism it might be just a particular mix, but it also might be i think once a once you've got political leaders, and in Australia we had, you know, a combination of certain political leaders in, in um, a, a one particular, in our, in our Liberal National Party, once they feel that climate is an effective wedge within their own party and for the opposition, they're just going to keep using it. So I think that's part of it as well. It's a political, well, it's a political tactic that pays off and I don't think, you know, the, the dominance of the Murdoch media in those two places particularly helps either. But it's not quite like that elsewhere. And interestingly, you know, some people say, is it because um, science education in Australia and the US is not great? And I said, well, there's countries where the educational standards in terms of the PISA standards are far lower. Think about every Pacific Island country (laughs) that you can imagine. They've got lived experience of climate change and an acceptance that this is what's happening. So it is actually really critical to address this in Australia and the United States and we're quite similar in that way.
0: Do you think maybe it started, I think this is one of the things you talk about, that way back when it was Al Gore who was one of the strongest advocates uh, in terms of climate change and do you think that is one of the reasons why in certainly in the United States and perhaps by extension here um, concern about climate change has been associated with the progressive side of politics?
1: It has, I think that's part of it. And that's no great that's not to criticize him, he's a fantastic climate communicator. It's also been that the climate, the environment movement, which is also traditionally associated with the progressive side of politics, was the really first to, to latch onto climate change, understandably, and be the advocate. So in the end, we associate the message and the messenger incredibly closely, which mm. is why when people say, Oh, should our goal go away, or should the Extinction Rebellion people go away. I say, no, that's mm-hmm. not realistic. Any, any movement for massive change, social, economic, structural change, requires people on, across the spectrum. We don't need to, to get rid of those voices. We need to add a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot more voices from the, from the conservative side of politics who aren't associated with politics at all, talking about climate
0: in a way that is relatable to m- more people than just that progressive side. Mm, I was going to ask you that, How, what can we do to make it less politicised here?
1: Well, one of, the thing, one of the small things that I do, and this sounds really small, but I think it's important, on my Twitter feed, if anybody, I tend to retweet anything that comes from regional, rural voices, farmers and the conservative side of politics on, on environment. If, if if I if it's something that I think is positive and um, constructive, so yesterday I retweeted something that the minister, um, one of the ministers in the Berejiklian government, wrote about saying we need to protect koalas. You know, so I retweeted that. I retweeted a lot that um, the environment, New South Wales Environment uh, Minister Matt mm. said. Mm. So I I think, and I'm I'm on the progressive side of politics. So I think about how can I amplify voices from people who, there might be other things I don't agree with them, but on this I want want to give their efforts some Mm. kind of a platform because in a sense it's really easy for somebody on the progressive side of politics to speak out about climate. It's much, much harder if you're a third or fourth generation farmer from National Party territory Mm. to say I'm really worried about climate change and I actually want a wind farm on my farm and I don't think the National Party is doing anything Um, I think that's a much braver thing to do. Mm. And not this week, but last week the the Australian Farmers Federation spoke out about climate. I retweeted that. So Mm. we should be doing what we can to support what are really quite, you know, what would be seen to be unlikely voices on climate and support them in the work that they're doing.
0: Rebecca, let's move now to talk about some of the emotions that you um, focus on in your book. And so you do it chapter by chapter. We won't get through all of them, but the ones (laughs) I'm going to ask you about are guilt, fear and anger, denial, despair and hope. So let's start with guilt. What role do you think guilt can play in making people change their behaviour, but how can it backfire?
1: Yeah, so look, guilt guilt was pretty important for me. Like I, there was a little sense in that moment when I came to the climate movement of feeling like this anticipated guilt. First of all, a sense of responsibility and that if I didn't do anything, if, in, you know, 10 years' time my kids turned around and said, oh, my, you know, what, what were you doing? <laughs> I would feel like I wouldn't feel quite as guilty if I said, well, I've spent the last 10 years doing what I can. Um, so so guilt has to come guilt and responsibility connected right so so there's only so far that guilt can go when directed at individuals because there's only so much that I can do as an individual on climate but guilt can be effective what I say and I still have arguments with people in the in the climate movement about this when you're starting to make people feel bad about who they are then they do really push back because there is this, if you shame people about the decisions that they make or who they are or where they live or what they do for a job, then that's really problem. that is genuinely problematic because it assumes that people have complete power over, um, over their lives, which we and don't. Sure. We only really have power collectively. So I think that's when, when shame, when it becomes you're a bad person rather than there is this thing that's happening, you can play a role. Um, please step up, which is about a mixture of of tapping into somebody's sense of responsibility, personal power, with a bit of guilt. That can work. Shame doesn't.
0: Okay, yeah. let's talk now about fear. You read a book, it's a very frightening book, by the sounds <laughs> of things, called yes. The Uninhabitable Earth. Yes, during the Australian bushfires of last yes. summer. What was it about and what impact did it have on you, particularly reading it at that time? Yes, it was really quite an
1: extraordinary cocktail of heat and smoke, looking at the fires through basically through my, through my Twitter feed, no air conditioning, trying to write this book and then trying to read that book. So it was, <laughs> it was really quite an experience. Look, it's just chapter after chapter about the worst-case scenario. Mm. Um, that we face, and and kind of creates a kind of all-encompassing hellscape of of disease, war, um, billions of refugees, people fighting. You know, kind of the collapse, the kind of the collapse of, of states, the rise of warlords, as well as every you know animal that we put starvation. You know, that. and of course, it's 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 based on scenarios that are based on actual science. Um, but for a lot of people, it's unreadable. For some people, they read it and it it's the turning point for them that the that, that children's climate strike was for me. But it did make me reflect on the extent to which we have to tell everybody everything that can happen to get them to act or if we tell them too much, whether that's that sense of, oh, well, what's the point? Or, no, 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 you're actually trying to scare me into adopting your political agenda. So there's real risks in fear. Um, and but that being said, it's too lazy to say we can't use fear. We do have to make people give people a sense of what's at stake, mm. what has been lost, and what can be protected if we act. And there's lots and lots of case studies now of communities saying, "Oh wow, if we don't do X, Y and Z, there's not going to be this animal anymore. There's not going to be this clean water anymore. There's not actually going to be this village anymore." So that so that sense of acknowledging that climate change has already made us lose things that we value is actually critical. And so we can't pretend that we can get people to act or come together to act sufficiently quickly and
0: effectively without some degree of loss, fear and what's at stake. Okay, let's look at anger now. And you make the very important point that anger over the generations can in fact galvanise people into action and that there are many social justice reforms that clearly wouldn't have taken place if people hadn't become angry about an issue. What do you see as the role of anger in the climate change debate? Is it a a helpful way to try to change people's minds? There's no
1: point in in getting angry at uncle dave at christmas who only listens to only listens to alan jones um or andrew bolt or whatever there's just no i just think there's no point it's just going to make you upset and him upset no one's convinced and in fact what that can do is anybody else that's around listening to you getting angry at your uncle thinks oh i don't want to engage with climate change it makes people angry it creates conflict you know and it reminds people of what people do in Parliament House, screaming at each other for no good effect. So mm-hmm. I think... Verises people. Exactly. So I think in one-on-one communication, anger can be actually quite problematic. And what you actually need when you talk to people and mixing people is empathy, understanding, keeping the conversation going, um, and not, not absolutely agreeing, but finding effective ways to keep that conversation going. And anger shuts things down and makes things escalate. But being angry at what is happening and, and having an avenue to channel that with other people is, again, absolutely critical. Mm. The, the, the students' climate strike was a moment of anger and frustration. When we go to the ballot box and we feel that we've been really badly done by, by um, a government, they're not prioritising the things we want, Then, in a sense, when government is thrown out, that is a collective cry of anger and frustration, and that can be important. And those are the kinds of things we need. We need voters to say, "Actually, this is real. You're ignoring this. You're asleep on, you're asleep on the job." We want you to do something. So, it's really about it's really about when to use the anger, and and almost all activists say that anger is um, anger and frustration when um, expressed collectively through effective channels can be extraordinarily um, important. Um, and But how you use it, it can't be all the time. You can't, have a, you can't necessarily have a strike every time. You can't necessarily, you know, do those. You've got to really time those moments of collective anger to wake people up and really to scare the people whose hands are on the levers, right? That's what we need to do.
0: Let's talk now about denial. And you uh, you make the point that there are different forms of climate change denial. There's active denial as opposed to passive denial. There's professional denial as opposed to amateur denial. Tell us a little bit about that, about the different forms of denial.
1: Well, I think that we're all, and I make the point we're all in a form. That we all have to be in some form of passive denial just to be able to <laughs> exist, just to be able to keep going. Um, and there's really nothing wrong with that. And and there are. You know it's a, it's necessary, and also there are some people in the community for whom passive denial is the only way they can get they can move forward. In the work that we do at the moment, which segments the Australian population according to climate change, there's a section that we call the disengaged. They're in passive denial about climate all the time. Unsurprisingly, seventy percent of them are women with a lot of caring responsibilities who don't have a lot of money. They're just trying to get through the day. So I'm not going to point the finger at them and say you're in passive denial. I mean they're they're just trying to find the kid's shoe and pay the pay the bills. So I get that. Active denial is making a decision. Really, you know, it's more that that denial is in the front of mind in your life, and you're really kind of attached to denying climate change. And that's when you go into that amateur professional and there's lots of amateur deniers out there and it's the professional deniers that we have to focus on uncle bob might just be annoying at christmas he's not making money out of being a denier and in the sense he's probably not doing a lot of damage but when we have people who are running the country in powerful positions of the media where a central part of their role is a responsibility to protect the community to be um to to convey the facts and to act um, on evidence. And they have a platform which is an amplification. In the end, it all is all based on their decisions and everything they do should be based on evidence, evidence-based. And when they are ignoring that for a whole range of reasons, they failed in their fundamental job, right, so their fundamental responsibility and their fundamental professional obligation. Um, it's like an engineer ignoring all of the safety reports and all of the reports from everybody else when they build a building, right? It's a, it's a dereliction of duty. That's what I talk about. So if those are people who, those, fun, those professional deniers who are also making money from being professional deniers, then that's not okay. We do have to focus our attention not on passive denial, um, not on amateur denial, but professional denial. And that's why the, you know, Zali Stegall winning against um, Tony Abbott, even though it was one seat, was a really significant blow for that community, that professional denial community and really, really um,
0: exciting political development in Australia. So we did talk a little bit about Uncle Bob, but what is, in your day-to-day life, what's the most effective strategy to use with a climate change denier? You're at work, you're all standing around in the kitchen and, Somebody makes a statement that you, not being climate change denier, feel quite outraged by, yeah. or you're at a cocktail party, drinks party, the same things happen. How do you, living your daily life, committed to your own beliefs, what's, what's an effective way? Should you engage with them? Should you just let it pass? What, what do you think?
1: Yeah, and, look, and this is something that faces me a lot, I've got to say, and it really depends on my energy level at the time. I mean, one of the things I'm I'm fascinated about, and I've seen this in research all the time, is I've, I've had people who are pretty much deniers in my focus groups who have solar panels and water tanks and, you know, and big veggie gardens and, you know, don't do anything other than get their camper van and, you know, perhaps go on a trip up the coast. And so I kind of think, I think one of the ways you can talk to them is you can understand why they're turned off from the the climate issue. A lot of the time climate deniers say, oh, you know, it's so boring, I'm so bored by it all, but they keep wanting to talk about it. I mean, sometimes I talk to them about the solutions. What I tend to do with anybody who finds it really hard to engage with the climate science is I talk about the solutions because in my qualitative research, I often find people are really doubtful and dismissive about the climate science who have all the solutions in their, you know, basically on their on their roofs with solar panels and, you know, not flying around the world and very aware of waste and all the rest of it. So I kind of just congratulate them for, for embracing the solutions. And then I'm also curious about whether they think um, those solutions can be scaled up, like to what extent do they feel that, we could move completely to renewable energy in Australia and how good would that be for Australian manufacturing and for, Austra- you know, for Australian households and all the rest of it. So I tend to focus on the solutions, And if they get antsy with me about that, and sometimes they don't, I just kind of talk to them about Netflix.
0: <laughs> One of the connections you make in the chapter on denial, which I just have to ask you about, is the link between climate deniers and anti-feminists. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: So what, what is clear is that climate denial sits in a, in a um, network of other attitudes to government, to social change, and it's often that denies, and it's not surprising, not all denies are like this, but there's a bit of a demographic skew to older white men. And for these older white men, the world has changed dramatically over the time in which they have been alive. And for some of these men, obviously not all older white men, because Old white men and every single across the across the spectrum. Al Gore's and old white men. So is men. Joe Biden exactly. But for these old white men, climate change, women's rights, trans rights, a black guy in the White House, the fact that they can't say exactly what comes into their head and that it comes out of their mouth, and people think that that's problematic. All of that change, along I think, with significant. Um, economic and structural change. So that whole issue around cultural, social, economic identity, it's very, they've not managed that transition very well. And so climate change becomes one of a whole range of trendy issues that for them has meant that their place in the world doesn't feel quite as certain or secure anymore. And so there is that. The other thing, and this is really interesting, is that there is this sense that... um, that the environment movement generally or focusing on nature or focusing on protection of anything, cuddly animals or trees or water, is somehow a really feminine or womanly Wait. thing, that wind and solar are womanly energies and that, that gas and oil and, and and nuclear, these are kind of, you know... Manly. Yeah, somebody said they're phallic symbol energy. <laughs> and they have generally been associated with male employment, it's lots of male employment and renewables I've got to say. So I think there's a there's an interesting political, social and psychological response to the climate issue and to, to climate change and renewable energy. That means that this group who are really attracted to denialism also have a range of other attitudes including to women and you know and to you know you know trans rights
0: and a whole range of things. All right, now we're going to come to despair. So an inevitable consequence of reading and, in your case, also writing and talking about climate change is despair, which, as you point out, is probably the most negative and the destructive emotion. And you write about the fact that there's been a rise in climate-related mental health issues such as depression and anxiety. There's something that's called echo anxiety And one writer calls it toxic knowledge, that once you once you know the truth, what's known can't be unknown. How do we manage that climate despair? How do you personally, working in the field, 24-7 reading, writing, talking, how do you deal with that despair?
1: The first thing, and I suppose this is why there's been so many mental health professionals and psychologists engaged with climate change and attracted to it, lots of support. Um, material out there and networks that people can access if they want. Um, the first thing is not to push it away too much. There are moments that you need to allow yourself of a kind of sense of sadness and oh, and oh my God, <laughs> what have we got ourselves into? They tend to happen to me at two AM in the morning, and I don't feel quite as bad when I wake up in the uh, when I wake up later on. Um, so to suppress them is problematic. I think you do need to allow yourself those moments, but you don't want to be stuck in a cul-de-sac of despair because you kind of can head into that doomer territory where you actually are, I think, a bit um, counterproductive in the movement. About uh, and so that that is certainly not where you want to end up. Um, I think that I think that what I would say from learning, because I don't think I've been involved quite long enough to get in, and everybody who's been involved for a long time goes through longer phases of despair. I've been involved quite long enough for that to happen. But when I have talked to activists about that, they talk about the importance of reaffirming patterns of self-care, um, spent interestingly, spending time in nature that doesn't remind you of climate um, destruction, and working and talking with other people. For me, it could have been very easy. Quite easily, have woken up that morning, looked at that protest, gone off and read *The Uninhabitable Earth, Uninhabitable Earth* straight away, and thought, "Oh wow, the horse has bolted." And actually gotten into quite, like I said, that cul-de-sac of despair. But instead, I reached out to everybody I knew in the climate movement. I, I talked to a whole lot of engaged climate activists. I read a whole lot of stuff about how we can break through these um, psychological and cognitive barriers when we talk about climate change, so that when I finally came at the end of the year to read The Uninhabitable Earth, I had some of those thoughts and tactics and voices in my head before I approached it. But the other thing that a lot of activists say to me is that they've stopped reading all the science. They constantly read it all that's not going to help them. They they keep updated and they all do, about, but they don't immerse themselves in the bad news. They keep up to date with the bad news and they're constantly spending time thinking, okay, what's the possibility? And interestingly, I just have to add this. When COVID hit in Australia, every other sector that I'm engaged with just stopped and kind of dropped the ball. The climate movement was the only group that were like, that literally when they knew that this was a new crisis, they're like, right, what do we have to do? How do we have to keep, how do we have to keep going knowing that this is the new world we live in but keep they They almost didn't pause to um, draw breath. It's like they're ready for these intersecting crises and how we need to keep going. So for me, while COVID was difficult, engaging with these people who were still like, yep, yeah, it's another crisis, we've got, also got a crisis, what can we do? and thinking creatively about how to persevere was just terrific. And even if there was a moment of despair for me,
0: none of those people would have allowed me to stay there. I wanted to ask you about the impact of COVID. It seems to me we've seen two phenomena emerge, certainly here in Australia. First of all, we've seen a conservative government that's been willing and prepared to listen to the scientific experts and to accept their advice. And second, we've seen people in Australia, but all over the world, make massive changes to their behaviour in a very short period of time. Do those two things give you hope that um, perhaps those factors will come into play more now in relation to climate change? Perhaps conservative governments will be more prepared to listen to and accept the signs that perhaps people who realise that their very survival is at stake might be prepared to change their habits. I think so,
1: and I think that even if, even if they don't want to learn, I hope that the electorate will keep pointing to that lesson. The third thing that I would add, and this is, I think, really important given the Australian context, something like job seeker and job keeper, is that we've recognised with the pandemic that there are big sectors, big employment sectors, big sectors of the, of, of, um, the economy that can't function, that are going to go through a transition, whether' that anything, whether that's hospitality, whether that's tourism, whether that's the art sector. I wish I could say the tertiary education sector, but it doesn't get job seeker or jobkeeper, but should. So one of the things that it, that it says to me is that a government can recognize that things can happen, which means that there's a big disruption to a particular sector because of the nature of it, and that we need to do something for those people. To see them through a period. Now, they might come out and be in completely different jobs because they just couldn't sustain it, or they might stay in that job, their job might look different. Why we can't do that for fossil fuels in Australia is beyond me. We have done JobKeeper and JobSeeker, has been, um, has been applied to and accessed to by many, many, many more workers than work in fossil fuels today. And so I also think it shows us that we can support people, support workers who really are in those jobs and want those jobs through a period of transition in a way that's good for the economy as we come out of it. And that's what I would like to also say, to people, that we are really worried about those, the, the livelihoods and um, the communities where, that rely on fossil fuel jobs, but we can do it. The government has shown it can do it through a pandemic, not just for six months, but they're going to have to be supporting those workers for years as we go through an economic recovery period. So that's, I think, the third lesson that we need to keep in our heads when we think about climate change.
0: Rebecca, I want to end our interview talking about the best of the emotions, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And that is hope. Yeah. Knowing what you know, it must be very difficult to uh, maintain hope. And you describe what you have, your form as hope of hope, as a, a type of... Skeptical optimism. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? About what you mean by that? Well, it's skeptical because
1: I know I know about the science, and I also know about the significant barriers, and also the fact that we ha- uh, have dragged the chain, particularly in Australia, but also globally. Like, so t- we have time is not on our side. That's the skepticism. Um, the optimism is is based on two things. First of all, it's a kind of a, it's a sceptical, it's also a decision to be optimistic. I have no other choice other than to be optimistic and active on this issue because I couldn't look my kids in the eye and say, look, it was all too hard. Sorry. (laughs) I just, you know, decided to watch, you know, decided to spend a lot of time, I don't know, doing something else rather than thinking about this. So I have an obligation to them which requires me to be both active and optimistic. And also, secondly, I haven't given up hope on the human race. <laughs> and, and 15 years of listening to Australians talk and thinking about people, um, I actually still think that we're capable of doing this, capable of doing it both in terms of, our, of the technology available to us now, but also capable of it emotionally socially. I think we can do it. So that's where my optimism is. And that's not based on I wish we could do it. That's based on I actually think we can.
0: You also talk about having faith in the idea of collective action, and that's something that you've seen from so many of the people that you've spoken to, that there's hope not just in individual action but in the capacity of people to group together and to act collectively.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you had said to me three or four years ago that a young autistic teenager in a Scandinavian country would decide to jig school with a sign, and that within less than twelve months you'd have hundreds and thousands of people all around the world striking in solidarity with her in all kinds of countries from all kinds of backgrounds um, on climate, you would thought sort of, that just sounds like a bit of a weird, but sounds like a bit of a pipe dream but it happened. I mean, it, she literally went from being a single person um, protester to within 12 months, it became a global movement and it continues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those kinds of extraordinary moments. Um, and that's a really good moment of shaming a lot of political leaders. It hasn't been effective with some, but it has galvanised other people. So it is absolutely possible. We don't have to reach into the future. We don't have to Projection to the future and hope those moments will happen. We can look at the past and we can look at what's
0: happening now. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, your book is fantastic. I hope that it will have the the impact that you hope for. That it will galvanise lots of us who perhaps have strong feelings but don't quite know what to do about them. You give all sorts of suggestions at the end of the book, a checklist for what individual people can do. So I congratulate you on the book. I wish you all the very best with it. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.